0: On a benediction of wind, they watched the cranes leave, and their feelings reached out to each other like the minds of migratory birds communing. Above them, the sky abundant would stop at nothing. He turned to her, and she said, Jettison everything.
1: Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with poet Charles Finn about his collaborative collection, On a Benediction of Wind, Poems and Photographs from the American West. It's a collection of free verse and prose poems, paired with black and white landscape photographs of the Pacific Northwest and the American Southwest, taken by Barbara Michelman. Multiple themes are threaded throughout this collaborative work. Birds abound, as does a subtle reverence for the natural world as a spiritual and sacred space and a couple making their way through these natural spaces, reflect on their experiences together, which makes this collection a full-bodied study on companionship and intimacy. Charles Finn is the former editor of the literary and fine arts magazine, High Desert Journal, and author of Wild Delicate Seconds, 29 Wildlife Encounters. His essays, poems, and nonfiction have been published in journals, magazines, newspapers, and anthologies across the West. He lives in Haver, Montana with his wife, Joyce, and their cat, Lutza. Charles, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you. I'd like to begin our conversation by having you read the foreword to the book, if that's okay.
0: Sure. It was a warm summer evening, and we were gathered with a dozen or more friends at the long outdoor table in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana. Barbara and I, friends for a number of years, were seated across from each other talking about our current projects, when the host of the party leaned in. You two should do a book together, he said. The response caught us off guard, the entire table, as if on cue, chiming in, what a great idea. What you hold in your hands is the result of the encouragement we received that evening, a quiet tapestry of my nature poetry and Barbara's photography a cross-pollination, if you will, of the elements both arts share. The photographs, black and white images from the Pacific Northwest and Southwest, are not narrative supports for the poems, while neither are the poems descriptive monikers of the photographs. Rather, each act is a reflection of the other, evoking and enhancing the feeling, emotion, and idea investigated by the first. While not entirely ephrastic, I sometimes worked off Barbara images and she sometimes from my words the dovetailing of our ideas surrounding nature and the natural world. I've always found a quiet profundity in Barbara's images. She sees a tender strength in my words. As the months progressed and Barbara and I began discussing ideas about what a combined project might look like, we found ourselves talking in terms of a jazz ensemble, of bouncing poems and images off each other, riffing off the other's work and using inspiration from one art form to spark the other. I'd send Barbara a poem, and she'd shoot back images that it had sparked for her. She'd send me an image, and I'd immediately go to the keyboard. There was an energy that the two art forms traded in, and we took advantage of that, one leading to the other, back and forth, back and forth, like a call and response between her camera and my pen. And although we feel each poem or photograph can stand on its own, that when placed together, they form a third even more pleasing combination for reader and viewer alike.
1: There was an energy that the two art forms traded in. I I love that idea. What energy, Charles, does your poetry trade in?
0: Oh, I would have to say probably a very quiet, subtle type of energy. I find the poems, I'm always shocked because I'm not sure how the poems read on the page because i i i read them out loud to myself all the time when i'm composing them and i'm a little afraid that they're just going to be too quiet and too simple when people just see them on their own um but i think you know maybe taken as a whole they combine um to be something that you know people enjoy uh so it's they're quiet I, whatever quiet energy they bring that's uh that's what i think mostly of
1: yeah I like that quiet energy, and you're right. Like, read together, there is something more robust about them, or maybe a little bit louder, but I think you're right. Quiet is probably a good description. If Barbara were here with us and she couldn't be here with us today, how would you describe the energy of Barbara's photographs in the book?
0: Oh, um, well, again, I've been drawn to her work for years, and what I see in it is it's not your big, splashy, loud photographs i guess for lack of a better word there's a subtlety and a depth that's not sort of postcard pretty type of photographs Um, they're ones that i can look at you know for hours and hours and hours and and not tire of and they're not what you always think of as uh, ideas or what people would normally shoot there's you know back alleys and train stations and then there's also your your grand vistas from yellowstone or somewhere like that but barbara does an excellent job of capturing just that vastness. And I'm thinking of one of the photographs here in the poem, What Makes Me, so it's such a shame that we can't, this is radio, so people can't really see these. But there's a just sort of an iron fence or a gate leading down towards what looks to be the river and then this huge moody sky above it. Your eye starts there and it's drawn along down to the river and then up to the sky. but. Uh, Like I say, there's a a quiet profundity there that really draws my eye in, and um, it, it actually sparked me to write many of the poems in the book.
1: You know, for listeners, these photographs are black and white, and there is so much depth to the blackness of these photographs, so much depth to the different gradients.
0: Yeah, so again, she's not shooting what you normally would, think of putting on your wall it's like a pretty shot or a pretty look at the mountains um this is a you know an iron gate that you pass without even thinking and she sees it from behind the camera and thinks oh i'm going to shoot that which most photographers might just walk right past it
1: your poems and Barbara's photographs are kind of working in this conversation and together. And that process seems fairly straightforward. I'm wondering, though, about how you shaped and edited this collection. Um, Once it was clear that a book is what it was going to be. Did each of you stay in your respective lanes? Uh, Was Barbara editing your poems? And were you kind of curating with her alongside like which photographs were going to be where? And I'm wondering about that process.
0: Yeah, it was a really a wonderful uh, collaboration. We worked really, really well together. And over the course of the years, there was you know, a number of the poems that I had sent her, and we had paired them with a few photographs. We made a series of tintypes, which um, were very well received at the time. And as I got more and more poems that I thought were grouped together, we had an idea of doing a whole bird book all on the flyway. So of would be um, her shooting all the different refugees of up and down the coast and I'd write poems to them, but I couldn't get out to travel enough to really do that. So it's heavy on bird poems. Uh, I mean, we were 10 years talking about this and dabbling here and there. And she finally came up to federal way where I was at the time in Washington. And we just sat down and said, let's put it together. And we spent, I think at least three days, long days, just, um, at our computers, And I was picking basically the strongest poems that I had. And we were going through a lot of her photographs. She'd pick three or four that she thought might work. And then we tried to uh, lay them out on the page where they would have a conversation with each other. We didn't want a poem and a photograph, poem and photograph. And when we found a photograph that worked with a poem, we were both like, yes, that's the one. We'd go back and forth like, oh, that kind of works. And yeah, that does speak to the poem a bit. When we found the one we liked, we both agreed completely. And even on how we tried to lay it out with the words overlaid over part of the sky or something, we need, it's like, there's not enough space there. We got to do something to squeeze it down or move it or crop it differently.
1: Would you have edited a poem in that instance, like with the two of you?
0: Yeah, so not for space reasons, but I'm always tinkering and I would maybe see a word. Well, let's take that one out. But it, it wasn't so it fit well on the page. It was so it read well. And Barbara obviously gravitated more towards some poems. I'd send some to her and she's like, oh, I really like these three. That one, you know, is good. But so maybe we didn't include that in the book. And she would um, comment and not quite edit the poems, but she'd give me feedback, which I would use to maybe edit the poem. So there was a bit of back and forth, but she was helping me with the text. And, you know, I was talking about which photographs worked best kind of thing. Um,
1: I'm wondering what boundaries or limitations you placed on it, or if you did at all. Were there rules about subject matter or anything that was off limits? Or was it just like, we're going to spend 10 years and just see what comes of it?
0: Yeah, well, obviously, it was 10 years. It was on and off, very sporadic, until we finally really got together and, and nailed it down. We never set any boundaries or limits, so it was obviously going to be mostly nature poems and whatever i turned out and her she's mostly a landscape photographer so it was simply the strongest work that i had and her strongest work that we could pair with it was the only guidelines that we had
1: what was the decision behind including black and white photographs in this in this particular collection
0: well one is simply
1: Money, money. It's like yeah. it, it,
0: it costs less to produce. We wanted to pitch it to publishing houses that would um, pick it up, but we both like black and white. There's a starkness to it. There's a simplicity to it, and oftentimes there's a, a more powerful element to it. Uh, and it again, it seemed to go well with my style of poetry. Sure. Yeah.
1: And your poetry might most easily be described as nature poetry right but i'm curious about how you consider that genre and how you characterize uh, perhaps more broadly your ethics around that genre uh,
0: i know that a lot of writers don't like to get pigeonholed into i'm a nature writer you're a writer and your subject often happens to be nature so i'm not afraid to anthropomorphize i think For a while, that was a very dirty word and people are coming around a bit to accepting it a little more, so.
1: Is that a creative license or what what do you think is behind that shift?
0: uh, Just a little more understanding, thinking about you can be allowed to do this. There, There are times where no, you simply wouldn't want to and it can detract and minimize the creature you're writing about, but to give them voice and give them life it's one way to help let these animals that can't speak for themselves actually say some things that maybe they would really like to tell humans
1: we're going into subgenre perhaps here but the kind of nature poetry that i saw in your book which there's a holiness right there's a spirituality that's kind of imbued in nature and i'm wondering how that idea resonates with you um even, you know, the title, the titular poem, Benediction, like how spirituality plays a role in your writing process and how you think about the type of poetry that you're writing.
0: I've found much more spiritual comfort and holiness when I'm outside in the woods or sitting next to a river than I ever have in a church somewhere. I grew up Catholic, went to mass every week of my life until I was 18 or 20 or something. So there is a little bit of a pushback against organized religion. I use the word God fairly often, and I simply don't like the idea of a personified, angry old man in the sky. So I think that we can't understand, we can't know what God is, but we're stuck with the language. We need a word to express something that is, call it the great spirit. or But there is this sense of There's more out there and we don't have any clue what it is, but I feel that when I'm outside in nature. So it leaks into a lot of my poetry, but I'm stuck with the word we so often use, you know, God. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it does pop up here and there.
1: Will you read the titular poem?
0: On a benediction of wind, they watched the cranes leave, and their feelings reached out to each other like the minds of migratory birds communing. Above them, the sky abundant would stop at nothing. He turned to her and she said, jettison everything. Oh, how little time we have and what will be left of us when we leave? A house on a hill, some wood smoke? Don't laugh, he said. Life is a rare vase carried by a child. As she laughed, tossing his most trusted fears like pennies into the sea. He watched the tide recede leaving her ankles, her toes. Wash the axle grease of now from your hands, she said. Take hold. Together we shall strike out for the northernmost territories of love. He watched the tide come back in. Like the cranes, he asked. Like the wild geese? Yes.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with the poet Charles Finn. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you want to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'd like to know about your use of perspective in these poems, or why multiples perspectives were integral to the voices that you're creating in this book.
0: Yeah, so especially with the he-she, I was visiting a friend uh, in Bend, Oregon, Neil Brown, uh, who's a writer and a professor. And he handed me a book by Robert Haas, Human Wishes. And I opened it just there in the kitchen, first poem, I'm going to just have a look at it. It's titled, A Story About the Body.
1: And for for listeners reference, to picture us here in the studio, Charles, you have a copy of Human Wishes with you here.
0: Yeah. So I often read it when when I'm doing readings. Um, And so he, he writes a number of prose poems. And they're about other people. They're, they're a couple or they're char- characters, more or less. And the poem really resonated with me. And I thought, wow, I want to try writing in that style. I began writing prose poems. And I found what it allowed me to do is get, get away from the first person I, and have these people say things that um, just would have sounded a little trite or corny or too romantic if I was Using my own voice, so it just became a convenient vehicle to differentiate some of these poems from ones where I might, you know, I'm I'm the narrator and I'm the speaker. I had fun doing it, so I just uh, I kept I kept at it, and I, I it was nice to get away from I I I or me me me, because you can create this persona.
1: I'm wondering like how you see this book, is it a book that readers should see that narrative arc? And if that's the case, then my question is what's the relationship then between this couple that you're writing about, these persona and the lyric I that does show up, eventually the speaker or the author speaker that's you, what's that relationship between those perspectives?
0: Yeah. So at one point I wanted to create a whole book of these two characters where they'd start out maybe as children and move along through, and they would meet and have a relationship and get married and old. And I thought that would be an interesting narrative. So it'd read a little bit like a short story, but it'd be all these prose poems that linked them all together. And I never, I just couldn't come up with 40 or 50 of those. So there might be, I don't know if there's up to 20 here. Uh, So that was possibly going to be that narrative arc you're talking about. And then, because I wasn't going to make enough for a book, these are just the strongest poems that I had at the time to fill in, and maybe they were first person in you know, just watching a, a robin in the yard or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't see there being a thread through here. There's a little bit of thread with the two people interspersed with the other poems that just are a little bit disparate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there seems to be a commonality in the texture and the quietness, again, of, of the poems that hold it together.
1: Mm-hmm. What does this collection then have to say about companionship?
0: Yeah, well, I've been married 18, going on 19 years with my wife. I grew up in a, what I say is a very stable home. My parents sort of illustrated for me what monogamy looks like as far as I know. So I grew up a very strong sense of that. And in this, it's a bit of a romanticized version of two people that are in love and staying together but I did want to sort of convey that, what it's like to be in a strong, committed, stable relationship and how nice that is and how fulfilling and how, you know, obviously it's difficult at times, but here there's examples of people that are together their whole lives. I don't know how companionship relates to the natural world and the animals that I write about. That's generally more just a observation and a kinship that I suppose I would feel with with many of them.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you'd read another poem for me.
0: Sure. Um, I will say one thing about this is, this title is very long, and it was originally the first stanza of the poem, and I thought it was just a rather weak opening. And so I moved it and made the whole thing the title. This is called, When I'm dead and gone, and you're going through my things, I don't give a damn what you say or think, as long as you remember me by the campfire smoke in my sweaters, the worn down lugs of my boots, that you judge me by the number of spiders I save from the sink and bulbs planted. Think of me in pounds of suet, bags of sunflower seeds, and liters of sugar solution. Consider me by the deer that come into my yard and swallows nesting under my eaves. I ask you this, please. Judge me not by worldly things, fortune or fame, rather judge me by my dogs, judge me by my garden, judge me by the friends that I keep, skunk, raven, raccoon, chickadee, elk, turtle, trout, bee.
1: Well, there's that companionship of the non-human, right? The friends I keep. I loved I loved that turn in the poem. Um, the joy that I felt upon reading the friends I keep, and then it being followed by non-human creatures, I thought that was really brilliant. Um, there's two migration poems in this book. I'm curious about the role of these pages with with the rest of the book, like the the role of those two poems because they're very different, right? They're they're um, again they're just one repeated word. They're not. Um, there's no sentimentality in them at all. It is literally just. Um, seeing the word flap over and over. And I'm wondering how they fit into this collection.
0: Well, flap, it was originally called flap. That was the title. And it's funny because that's one of my favorite poems I've I've ever written and one of the easiest poems. Which one? Oh, the first one. The first one. Uh, Migration. And so I decided to change the title to migration poem. And it was very, very difficult. Like, how are we going to pair this with a photograph? And five, six years ago when I, I wrote it, there was a skyscape and some geese down low and then flaps sort of behind it and there was some light blue and there was some color it wasn't anything like this when we came to try and put it into the book we had a really hard time um how can we make it look good in this format and so it was taken out i think for a while and near the end of the process we you know the collection been accepted and we went to the designer and said could we that we'd like to have that one in but we never made it work well can you find a way to maybe make it work and here's a bunch of images try it and at some point along the way i think i had gone back to freeze out and of course you're watching geese and v's of geese and it just occurred to me to make the flap into that sort of v shape Mm -hmm. and that became migration poem too some people find them quite humorous Mm -hmm. Uh, so it added a little bit of humor to the book
1: have you ever had to read those poems?
0: I have never dared read those.
1: Do you want to try? Mostly, I'm just curious about how you would choose to read it aloud.
0: Yeah, to read this would take me three Some or four time. minutes, and your listeners <laughs> would be turning the dial, right? They'd, they'd be onto something else. Yeah. So, this is the first line of migration poem. Flap, 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 flap. Flap, 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 flap. Beautiful. Yeah. And I've thought if I read it live and you know, at a reading in front of an audience, either they would fall into that trance Mm -hmm. and it would be very effective and it would work, or they'd be bored and like, oh my God, when is he going to stop? So I've never quite dared. To read that one in public. Yeah.
1: Um, I'd like to turn to the book's subtitle, Poems and Photographs from the American West. I'm wondering how you characterize the American West. Um, What does that phrase mean to you?
0: You know, the American West is obviously this uh, rather mythological place in some ways, um, sort of cowboy culture. And When I was editing High Desert Journal, we tried to push back against that. A lot of the stereotypes that people still stick to, to these days.
1: Is there any part of that mythos that you feel rings true to your experience of the West?
0: For sure. There's still people out there cowboying on horses and they're doing the work day in, day out. And there's some long, lonely stretches of time for them, depending on what they're doing and so there's certainly elements of that, but it's also cosmopolitan in places and nothing's ever one thing. I think that's actually the first line in one of my poems. Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, there's parts of that, the Old West that still survive.
1: Hmm. Will you read one more poem? Of course. Um, dealer's Choice, whatever oh poem goodness. you wanna read.
0: So I can't remember exactly, but most of my work springs from I'm reading whether it's I'm in the bath reading The New Yorker or something, or just any novel or any bit of poetry. And a phrase or a line somehow will grab my attention, and that spurs me to my notebook, and I'm writing away. And then, of course, you revise and revise. But So this one, I'm pretty sure I was reading something about, you know, someone putting a tractor away at the end of the day. And it just occurred to me that you know, the tractor's probably pretty happy to be done. And then that just spurred this whole idea of, things I would like to be. So a partial list of things I would like to be. I would like to be a sponge in the rain, wind in a tunnel, the prow of a ship, an atom being smashed. I would like to be air in a lung, cement hardening, bread rising. I would like to be sunlight and electricity and gasoline. I would like to be champagne. I would like to be a match struck, a splinter coming out, a hay barn full of hay, a tractor on the last day of harvest. I would like to be a book being read, a hand held, a beer drunk, a baseball on its way to a home run. I would like to be the sky on a cloudless afternoon. I would like to be a regret let go in a sports car taking a curve, a first kiss, a hug, a birthday, I would like to be a home-grown tomato. I would like to be a night out on the town. I would like to be a Christmas tree. I would like to be a couch on Sunday, a paycheck on Friday, good news in the mail. I would like to be a child's first step, a drum being beaten, a bed being made. I would like to be a wedding dress. I would like to be a log on fire, a swimming pool in summer, a toboggan in winter, the moon howled at by wolves. I would like to be gravity and photosynthesis. I would like to be a cure for cancer, for AIDS, the common cold and heartache. I would like to be a favorite color, an old pair of jeans, a hot bath and a college diploma. I would like to be a dance move, I would like to be a dovetail joint, a finish line, a path through the woods, a promise kept, a hole dug, a sold out show, a free parking space, a day off. I would like to be a haircut and a new pair of shoes. I would like to be an afternoon nap, a traffic light turned green, a stereo turned up, a stamp licked, a puddle jumped, a stone skipped, an eraser clapped. I would like to be dessert, congratulations, and a good laugh. Finally, I would like to be a seed of almost any kind. And I would like to be the calm before the storm. End the storm.
1: Charles, thanks so much for being here with me today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure.
1: That was poet Charles Finn author of The Collaborative Collection on a Benediction of Wind, Poems and Photographs from the American West. Look for more information about Charles and his collaborator, photographer Barbara Michelman, at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This show was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell. Our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.